Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from Pastor Chris Greenwood. That's just about as good as it gets right there. That's just fantastic. Every time I watch it, I think it's fantastic. So great. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Steve preached a message called Generation to Generation. In that message, he had some reminders and exhortations to all of us about the place, purpose, and focus of worship. So over these next three weeks, I'm going to be building on that foundation. Today's message is entitled, The Heart of Worship. I wanted to start here because if we don't know what the very inner core or central point of worship is biblically, then we will spin wildly off into unbiblical realities, and the ripples of that will lead us very far from the truth. There is a huge difference between what what worship is all about, what we offer in worship, and the experiences and expressions in worship. When we get those three concepts confused or out of order, worship instantly becomes unbiblical. Instantly. So over the next three weeks, I'm gonna be laying before you the biblical answer to those three concepts. Next week, we'll be looking at at the life of worship, and then finally, the expressions and experiences of worship. The last Sunday in August, I'll be preaching a message called Redefining Success. But today's question is, what is worship all about? The heart of worship, as Matt Redman penned it with his song, or the inner essence of worship, as John Piper calls it, find their unity and their one central foundational point in this, the making much of God. That's what worship is all about. We worship to make much of his worth and his work. For as the psalmist say, he is worthy of all of our praise, and how marvelous are the works of your hands, O God. So worship is all about, from start to finish, the making much of God. Now there are undoubtedly some of you here this morning that feel you've reached your limit on sermons on worship. For others of you, this might be new. Regardless of where you are on that continuum, I would ask that you stay tuned this morning because the rest of your Christian life, literally the entire rest of your Christian life here on earth and for all of eternity, will be spent doing and experiencing what we're going to be discussing this morning. None of us can be reminded or realigned to the heart of worship too much or too often. None of us. Now, as I was praying about what to use to illustrate the heart of worship this morning, I went through a lot of different biblical moments in the scriptures. Let me give you just a couple of options I went through. Abraham and Isaac at the beginning, as they were going up to the mountain, Abraham says, the boy and I are going on ahead to worship. Maybe David bringing the ark back to Jerusalem where he's seen leaping and dancing before the Lord, much to the embarrassment of his unbelieving wife. Maybe the woman at the well where Jesus reminds her that one day his people will come and worship in spirit and in truth. And she was so captivated by this man that she went and told people, come and see a man who knows all that I've ever done. That alone will just make you stop and think for a minute, to see a man who knows all that I've ever done. I thought about the transfiguration where Peter, James, and John went up on the mountain and saw the unrivaled and full glory of Jesus Christ revealed. And all they wanted to do was stay there and build some tabernacles and worship. Maybe Mary from Mary and Martha sitting at the feet of Jesus, just being in his presence and listening to him to the point where Jesus had to say, Martha, Martha, Mary has chosen what truly matters. 
Maybe the anointing of Jesus with perfume by this woman, the beautiful act of worship. Again, to the point where Jesus says, what she has done will be told in her memory for all time. Jesus in the garden after the resurrection, when they came up to him and they took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Maybe before the ascension of Jesus, before the the great commission, where it says they saw him and they worshiped him. And then the one that I really was gonna use for a long time uh, was the healing of the lame beggar, beggar at the gate called Beautiful in Acts chapter three. And kind of, just to tie that together with what Bethany said in the announcement video, it's a beautiful picture of us seeing those outside the church and them seeing us and being seen. And the response to his healing was that he leapt up and stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Beautiful picture. Each of those could have worked because they highlighted the the heart of worship but I was drawn to a different passage. I shared with you last time I spoke on a Sunday morning that my family and I have been going through the book of Romans together. In the course of that study, I came across one of the most well-known chapters in that book, Romans chapter eight, and I read it with new eyes. So I wanna start with verse 18, go through verse 30, talk a little bit, and then I wanna get to verse 30 through the end of the chapter. So if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn with them. If you have them on your apps, swipe or scroll, however you want to get there, or you can just read up on the screen. Here's the words of Romans 8, 18 through 30. For I, Paul, consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For we in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So verses 18 through 30 speak of a reality in which we live right now, right here, in this world, but not of it the groaning and the struggle, longing for what is but what is not yet. The contrast is sharp and distinct. It's drawn between the sufferings of this present time and the glory that's being revealed. Paul begins by explaining that creation itself longs to be set free. Creation, and indeed this entire world, has been bound by the fall, and the ripples of that binding are of those of one going through childbirth. Now believe me, I've seen those pains and four times, 
And may the mercy of God be upon any woman that goes through childbirth, especially more than once. Amen? I mean, to go through it again, we men just do not get that. I guarantee you why you would willingly go through that over and over again. We don't get that. But let me just say this now. I want to show these slides up here for you. These are headlines taken from the last week to illustrate to you what exactly is happening in our world. Just flip these headlines here. North Korea threat. What's next for Venezuela? Kabul attack. Earth's going to warm by 2 degrees Celsius. Mike Pence talking about a Russia threat. And Trump says no chaos as he changes people and his staff. All these different things. And that's just from one day. That's from CNN, Fox News, BBC, MSNBC. This is our world trapped in the bondage of sin. We know that it isn't right. We know that something is horribly wrong, right? I mean, you guys feel that, right? You, you see the headlines, you feel something's not right. God's desire wasn't for the ravages of sin to sweep the world. It wasn't for sickness, death, disease. It wasn't for deception, greed, entitlement, pride, envy, jealousy. It wasn't for war, murder, rape, abuse, or any number of the horrible sinful realities that seem to dwell freely all around us now. And so there is a groaning. There is a conflict in the world because there sh it shouldn't be in conflict. I don't know if you know what I mean. Have you ever been in a disagreement with somebody and part of the disagreement is because you don't understand even why you're in a disagreement with them to begin with? You're just in this disagreement. You both want to find resolution but there's no common ground to be found, and so the anger is really at the conflict, and it's at the fact that you can't resolve the conflict. That's the struggle that this world is in, in all of its systems. It's bound in conflict, but it knows it shouldn't be. It longs to be free, and it can't, so it rages against itself. That's why the systems of these worlds stand in opposition to each other. Just at one example, take humanism, that exalts humanity above everything else, and environmentalism that exalts the environment above all else. The world says these things, two, thing, two things work in harmony with each other, when in reality they're indirectly opposed to each other. When you take humanism to its extreme and environmentalism to its extreme, they completely are in opposition to each other. And yet our world says, eh, no problem. And they know that's not right, and so there's this raging against itself. But it's not just creation that's bound. Today's passage says that we too find ourselves in a binding, a binding we know we weren't created to be in, and so we groan and we struggle to be free. For those of us in Christ, we exist in this dual world of freedom and binding. We've been freed from sin, and yet still find ourselves at war with the systems and enticements of this world, our flesh, and the enemy of our souls, Satan. In a very real sense, we still feel bound by the desires that pull at us, are offered to us, and are constantly around us. Because of this, we find ourselves groaning inwardly and waiting eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. How many of you can think of a time where you have waited eagerly for something? Just think, what, when have you waited eagerly for something? Maybe it's wanting to be released from one of those mean times that Chris Furr preached about last month. Maybe it's eagerly desiring someone to speak words of calm to a storm of life that rages around you like Pastor Steve talked about two weeks ago. Or maybe it's something coming up in your life and you're just 
eagerly excited about it, like a family vacation or like a wedding, for example. Seems like there's a few of those going on. Can you think of a situation in your life that fits one of those scenarios? Maybe you look at your life and say, I've got stuff that fits all three of those. Part of the struggle of the Christian life is the eager anticipation we increasingly feel to see these bodies and these lives and this world fully redeemed. But praise God that in the waiting, we don't wait alone. Paul tells us in our passage of the one who helps us and intercedes for us, all in accordance with the will of God. It's the spirit of the living God who does this amazing work. And because of his work in aligning us with the will of God, we can have great confidence that all things will indeed work together for the good of those who love the majestic and yet approachable God of the universe. And for those whom he's called to faith in his son, Jesus Christ, we will indeed see that calling complete. So what then shall we say to all these things? What shall we say as we live in a world of chaos, in these bodies of constant struggle, and yet also with a spirit who's working tirelessly and a God who is faithful to the end? Well, that's the very question of Scripture. And so now let's read on in Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? For it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? For Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who, in his, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what do we say? We say that he is worthy, and we say that none can stand against him. We say he is good and the giver of all good gifts. We say he is our defender. We say he is not just the lover of our souls, but he is the embodiment of love itself. We say he made us to be conquerors, and that nothing and no thing can separate us from his love because he desires us. And he desires you, and he desires me. He is worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. He is the inner essence of all that is worth worshiping. He is the only one worthy of worship. He is God and there is none like him for he is the heartbeat of worship and true worship is the making much of him. So how can we not magnify him? How can we not proclaim the wonder of who he is? Am I right? Except it's actually very easy to do. And to illustrate this, I want to show you some images up on the screen. I'm going to show you some movies, six images, movies, novels, and objects. And I just want to add curiosity. I want to illustrate this point for you. Let's put the first image up there. Who's this one? All right. How many of you have seen Spider-Man Homecoming at the theaters? Okay. So there's the Marvel fans. Okay. Very good. Great movie, by the way. Really fun. I enjoyed watching it. Now, let me ask you this. For those of you that have seen the movie, who wrote it? No idea. 
Jonathan Goldstein and John Francis Daly, Watson Christopher Ford and Chris McKenna and Eric Somers. Those are just at the tip of your tongue. I know they were. And that's who wrote it. Now, maybe you're a little more more old school and you think, well, what? I know who wrote the original Spider-Man. Okay, well, if you know who that is, then, and you said this in your mind, Stan Lee and Steve Ditko, you're correct. Very good, the original Spider-Man. Maybe you know that. Okay, let's do the next slide. How about this one? Dunkirk. I have not seen Dunkirk yet. I've heard it's fantastic. Anybody in the room seen Dunkirk? Oh, a lot more people have seen Dunkirks. Okay, surprisingly. Probably not the same demographic there that raised hands, but that's okay. All right. For those of you that have seen Dunkirk, just raise your hand if you know who wrote that. Just raise, anybody, anybody at all feel, feel confident. Okay, okay, very good. If you're thinking Christopher Nolan, then you nailed that one. Okay, how about the original Dunkirk, the one that came out in 1958? Hmm, nobody. Okay, David Devine. Okay, next slide. I remember reading this. In high school, I bet there's a lot of people that have read Lord of the Flies in high school. Anybody raise your hand? Okay, or sometime in your life. Wonderful, very good. Okay, now, this one may have a little bit wider appeal. Who can remember right now the author of Lord of the Flies? Raise your hand. Okay, a smattering of hands. Well done. I completely did not remember, but it was William Golding. William Golding, oh, I know, you were right there gonna say that. William Golding. Um, Next slide, next slide. This is a book and a movie, but let's talk about the book for a second. All right, if you've ever read the book, Gone with the Wind, let me see some hands. Oh, wow, looky there. Wonderful, okay. Now, those of you that have read the book, raise your hand if you know who the author of Gone with the Wind is. A little bit more popular. Okay, not as many hands, but that's okay. Very good. Margaret Mitchell, Margaret Mitchell wrote that. Okay, next one. You guys are gonna love this one. The Super Washer Upper, the very first dishwasher very first dishwasher. How many of you, praise the Lord, you have a dishwasher in your house? Come on, you have a dishwasher. There it is. And not a husband, but an actual machine that washes dishes. Great. The super washer upper. Okay. Now, for those of you that just counted as a great joy, our first two homes did not have a dishwasher other than me. Our third one did, so I rejoiced at the arrival of the dishwasher. How many of you know who invented the dishwasher? Anybody at all? Okay, all right. It was a woman. It was Josephine Cochran. How about that? Oh, wonderful. All right, and this next one's even better than that. The Thor washing machine, the very first electric washing machine, right there. Okay, how many of you have a washing machine in your house to wash those clothes? Wonderful. Probably doesn't look like that, but that was the first one. Anybody know by any chance who invented the first washing machine? Not a woman this time, actually, um, but a a man named Alva J. Fisher invented the very first washing machine. So why why do I show you all these things? Here's why. Because it is very easy to elevate the movie, the novel, or the creation above the writer, the author, and the creator. We instead talk about the finished product We extol all that it either does for us or how it makes us feel. We share the emotion that it sparks in us, the memories that we created within us. We laud the benefit that we get from its very existence, and yet all the while never pointing to or even acknowledging sometimes the author, the writer, 
or the creator. And God is indeed the writer of our stories, the author of life itself, and the creator of all that is. So sadly, yes, KPC, it's actually very common to come to worship and make much of what God has done for each and every one of us. It's easy to come and offer him praise for the blessings in our lives and ask for help with the troubles. It's easy to magnify him for how he makes us feel. And hear me clearly, it's not wrong to do any of those things. But also hear me say this, it is oh so easy and tempting to begin loving God for the work that he does, the gifts that he gives, and the help that he offers, and before long find ourselves neglecting to love the one who does what he does, gives what he gives, and so generously helps us in times of our need. If you're a parent, you probably know what that feels like. You probably have experienced at least one moment where your child is clearly infatuated with a gift, but not so much the giver of the gift. For me, the most recent example was one of those darn fidget spinners. You would have thought that the world had entered some glorious new realm when my children got a fidget spinner for the first time. And it was all about the fidget spinner and not about the one who provided the fidget spinner. Just saying. I'm just saying. It's very easy to do. And so it is easy for us to do that and to miss the true essence of worship because the heart of worship is the making much of who he is. We must be ever vigilant to not become that kind of church and those types of children because it can and does happen. And here's the story to illustrate that. There is a song which dates back to the late 1990s. Born from a period of apathy within Matt Redmond's home church, sole survivor in Watford, England, his congregation found itself struggling to find meaning in its musical outpouring at the time. Matt Redmond said in an article that his pastor did a pretty brave thing. He decided to get rid of the sound system and the band for a season, and we gathered together with just our voices. His point was that we'd lost our way in worship and that the way to get back to the heart would be to strip everything away. So reminding the church family to be producers in worship and not just consumers, Matt Redmond's pastor asked, when you come through the doors on a Sunday, what are you bringing as an offering to God? Now that's actually next week's sermon, by the way. But Matt says the question initially led to some embarrassing silence, but eventually people broke into acapella songs and heartfelt prayers, encountering God in a fresh way. And then Matt Redmond said this, before long we re reintroduced musicians and sound systems, and as we gained a new perspective that worship is all about Jesus, and he commands a response in the depths of our souls, no matter what the circumstance and setting. The heart of worship simply describes what occurred. It was written quickly in Matt's bedroom soon after the church's journey together with no grand intentions for it to become an international anthem. He viewed the words simply as his personal subjective response to what he was learning about worship. But when he shared the song with his pastor, his pastor suggested making a few small adjustments in the lyrics so that the church, both that church and the Church Universal, could relate to it. Matt Redman is still amazed at how God has taken that song around the world for his purposes. So this morning, as a way of preparing our hearts for communion, we're going to listen to Matt Redman's song, The Heart of Worship. 
If you'd like to sing along, feel free to do so. The lyrics will be on the screen. But I would ask you to take some time to truly reflect. Maybe this is all new to you and you need to align yourself for the very first time with the primary purpose of worship. Maybe you've drifted a bit, and if you're real honest, you've been worshiping with the wrong primary purpose. As the song says, it's time. It's time to come back to the heart of worship. At the end of the song, Pastor Neil will lead us in communion. Let us be reminded through this song. Thank you for listening to the KPC Podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.